Welcome to the Ministry to Parents podcast. Here's your hosts, Elizabeth and Jeremy Lee. Well, hey, welcome everybody. It's another edition of the Ministry to Parents podcast. So glad you're here. This is the podcast for church leaders that helps them build a ministry to parents. Welcome. I'm Jeremy Lee. And I'm Elizabeth Lee. Thank you so much for joining in today. We are in a current series on how to help families in crisis, and we're covering specific topics. Last episode, we covered divorce, and today we're covering a specific topic of addiction. And I think in the day of the global pandemic and what all's taking place, our hearts are we want to help uh, church leaders and parents address these topics. Yeah, as lockdowns have happened and uh, just the stress and all the things that people are going through, uh, the stats all over the place are the mm-hmm. just about every one of the topics we're covering, they're on the rise. Mm-hmm. So this is good timing for us to be bringing in some friends and experts that we just really trust mm-hmm. to just uh, mentor all of us in this area, whether you're a parent listening that's going through one of these things or whether you're a ministry leader or a friend to someone who is going through one of these things. Uh, and, and I've already heard what we're going to be listening to, and I just need to just kind of, you know, st- just spill the beans a little bit. It's amazing stuff. It's good stuff. Today's format is a little bit different than what we normally do in our podcast episodes because we want to approach the subject of addiction through two different angles. The first angle is through an actual story of a person who has walked through addiction with their son, a teenage son who was struggling with prescription drugs, and she walked with her son every step of the way. And I'm going to call her Mama Bear to protect yeah. identity. It's powerful. It's so powerful. It's It's so powerful because she's so real and honest and vulnerable. She was willing to share her story so that those of you listening out there, if you could say, hey, I can relate to that or I know someone who can relate to it. It's very, very encouraging. It's it's just in real time almost of what it was like to just sit and listen to Mama Bear talk about what it was walking through this with her son. Whether you've been through something like that or not, if you've been through it, it's a must listen because it's going to make you feel like you're not alone. If you haven't been through it, it's a great story. Uh, it's uplifting. And at the end of the day, full of practical advice on how to encourage and love of someone who is going through it. Uh, it is just so good. And if you're a church leader, you're going to help a family at some point in this deal. And, and this is just gold. It's worth it for you to take the time to listen. So excited about Mama Bear. Yes. And right after Mama Bear, we follow that up with an expert on addiction who takes us through how it works from the beginning stages all the way through. And his name is Dr. Chip Dodd. He is an expert on this subject. And Jeremy first met him how many years ago? Uh, Oh, goodness, like 15. Long time ago. Yeah, and uh, his name is Dr. Chip Dodd. Uh, He runs a counseling center here in the Nashville area, and he helps specifically professionals go through what's called uh, the spiritual root system. Um, He's written uh, an amazing book that changed my life, changed our life, Mm -hmm. I could say, Mm -hmm. The Voice of the Heart. Um, Written a whole bunch of other books, and he's recently just released a brand new book on addiction. The book is called Hope in the Age of Addiction, How to Find Freedom and Restore Your Relationships. Uh, His website is chipdodd.com if you want to learn more about him. But this format I love, real life story from a parent 
right next to expertise from someone who has helped not hundreds, but thousands of people and families through this exact same issue. You know, one of my favorite things about his interview is he has uh, that expert brain, but he doesn't speak in such a way that I, I say us civilians, <laughs> you know, we, mm-hmm. he doesn't talk in such a way that it's just so over our heads. It's a very practical uh, description of addiction. And I think it's very helpful and anyone can understand what he talks about. It's so good. And if you're here because someone gave this to you and said, listen, uh, because maybe you've been through this, we just want to just say just from the bottom of our hearts, uh, we, we intend this to be a gift to you and we will be praying for you as you listen through this, that, um, that you find it as a place of peace and hope and, uh, and, just something that that helps you through what you're going through. So you ready to get this started? Let's I'm ready do to it. listen to Mama Bear. After the break, we're going to let you. Uh, uh, we're going to introduce you to Mama Bear and hear her story. It'll be great. We'll talk to you guys right after this break. Our team at Ministry to Parents would like to thank our members for the kind words they've recently shared with us. Scott from Texas said. This resource is both a time saver and a life saver. Amy from Michigan said, all of the resources are both spiritual and practical and can be tailored to fit my church's culture and style. And Boogie from Tennessee said, ministry to parents is like having another staff member on our team. We love our members and we'd love to invite you to join as well. To learn more about membership, go to ministrytoparents.com member. Thank you so much for joining us at the Ministry to Parents podcast. Today's episode, we are covering the subject of addiction, and I am so thankful because we have a mother who is bravely willing to share her story about how she walked through the the struggle of addiction with her son. And so I want to thank you for joining in. I'm going to call you Mama Bear because due to privacy, we're going to uh, not share your name or your son's name, but someone will call you Mama Bear. Is that okay with you? That's just fine, yes. <laughs> well, thank you um, for bravely being willing to share your story, and I believe it's going to help a lot of families. So why don't you uh, introduce us to uh, the story of what took place with your son um, the and how it kind of, when you first noticed what might be happening with his addiction and, and the addiction that he had? All right. Um, I would say that um, looking at our family from the outside, you know, there were two parents that were both educators and his older sister was um, in the gifted program, and we lived in middle to upper middle class housing. So we were kind of the average American family, and I um, really and truly did not think that the road that we would wind up taking would at all have been in our future. Um, My son was... um, obviously very special to me and he was always a little shy and a little insecure uh following his sister that was the sunshine of the world just ask her if you don't believe it but um he 
once he got, he was um, always had to work harder for his successes in school. Uh, some things came very easily to his friends and his sister. He always had to work harder. Uh, he had an athletic ability, but it didn't really take the edge off of him realizing that he struggled. He always made good grades, but it was not easy for him. Um, and probably in high school, um, he started experimenting. He was part of a group of kids that went hard and fast into prescription drugs. And I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of it because he could hide it from me. And it was, I guess, um, you know, he always held down his job, always went to school, um, but he always found ways to come home and be able to pull off that there was nothing wrong. So he kept it hidden from me for quite some time. Um, and then my husband and I decided to get a divorce. That had been long coming, long coming. And um, I, of course, felt like the distance that was there, that was, and the issues, not just distance, the issues that were there with him. Um, you know, I felt like he was coping with um, a divorce, having divorced parents, and any time there was any sort of um, an issue with behavior or uh, him being scatterbrained or losing his keys or a fender bender or something like that, you know, my first response was always, what did I do to cause this? But the the biggie was um, when I realized we were headed, or he was headed, and taking us with him, that he had serious issues was when he had um, an accident and um, was arrested, got a DUI, and even then, you know, I hoped it was a one-time thing, but that was the beginning of the nightmare for me. Probably not the beginning for him, but it was for me. Did so, that answer that part of the question? Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> that was great. I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to the story, I feel like I'm, I'm walking alongside of you as you're, as you're sharing it, and and I really appreciate because I know this is going to help a whole lot of families. I don't think that addiction starts out as an addiction, right? It's it, it's a struggle. And then that struggle eventually moves into addiction. And I love what you've said because you're on a journey and then your son is on a journey. And those are two separate journeys. And you've said this was the beginning of the nightmare for you. When did you, when did you begin to 
move from your saying, well, it, you, like you're saying, it might be this, this is why he's doing this, or it might be that. When did you begin to, as a mom, ask yourself, okay, maybe this is something going on with my son and there is an addiction. How did you get to that process or walk through that process? Um, well, it was, it, oh gosh, it was ongoing because I would have these signs and I would think, oh, this is, this is happening. Oh, no, it's not. Or this is, this is just his way of coping with this. And it's not an addiction as much as it is just his dealing with what's happening. Um, but, and then we, it was like a roller coaster up and down because he would live with me and things would be okay. Actually, let me back up to the, to the accident. At that point, my ex and I were still parenting and still in agreement that, um, you know, his welfare came before our, um, personal feelings towards each other. So we did work together to try to help him. We paid for a lawyer. You know, we went to, we took him to counseling. Um, we sent him to rehab. We paid. And I wanted so badly to believe that it was going to fix everything, but I knew it wasn't. I mean, I, I was in denial but I knew it wasn't. I knew he only went to rehab so that when he went in front of the judge, his sentence would be lighter. Uh, you know, and I, there were just too many things happening. Um, even after, and, and, and I was raised hardcore with my mom and especially my dad, and I could hear my dad's voice in my head when I was doing things that I thought was rescuing him. But looking back now, I know it was just enabling him and postponing what was eventually going to have to happen, which was for for him to decide it was time. Um, but I really think what happened before I was willing to accept because I I just couldn't I couldn't give up on him. Um, emotionally. Now, I, I did stop with the financial support. Probably what happened along with um, seeing the circle of people that he ran with becoming more and more um, people that he was not proud to bring home to have around me. Um, his losing a job, he, he had maintained a job for two years and then all of, then lost that job and then went through a string of not being able to hold down a job. And it was always someone else's fault. And um, I actually found things, you know, pills and things um, before I realized this is not just something that he's doing to cope. This is something that he's doing daily. But... Um, there was a major incident where um, he was selling out of my house, apparently, and I had no clue. 
And um, I came home, went to bed, and he had some people come in to rob him at gunpoint while I was asleep. And I woke to many, many, I think about seven police officers in my front yard and in my house. And that was the night that I said, you've got to go. You cannot be here. This this cannot happen anymore. And um, he was arrested, and I did not be called for help, you know, and I, I wouldn't. His dad was out of town. I wouldn't go get him. I wouldn't pay the bail bondsman. And um, I thought I was having a heart attack. I guess it was anxiety. I really, truly thought I was having a heart attack because I could not catch my breath and could not stop crying. But anyhow, I survived that night, and he survived it too. And when he was released, he was so angry with me and so disappointed with me as a mom that I would allow him to go to jail for an extended period of time that it really... Um, hurt our relationship at the time, but it also healed long run what had happened. But the, the signs, um, you know, even, even when they were in front of my face, I just, they were there. I just didn't want to see them. I didn't want to see the change in his appearance. The, 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 um, changing his personality. He wasn't carefree and laughing and fun with me. He was easily agitated and, you know, and I, I thought, oh, this is just what kids go through. He started the college and it was not a fit. So I, he felt like a failure, which, you know, my first thought was, okay, I, you know, I felt sorry for him and I, I just hurt when I saw him hurt. Um, so the signs were not, you know, he never came right out and said, this is happening, but I did say to him, if you're going to live with me, you must pass a drug screening anytime that I ask you to. And I went and bought some and I had them in my house and I said, you're never going to know what I'm going to ask. But you have to do this, and you have to pass the drug screenings in order to live here. And it infuriated him, uh, which was a defense mechanism, because he knew he couldn't. But he packed up his stuff and stomped off and left. And um, so it was, it was kind of an off-and-on thing for probably two or three years before he hit rock bottom. And those were some tough years. Driving past the jail to go to work that I knew he was in. Um, going weeks without hearing from him because he was angry, even though 
I knew, you know, you hear your whole life about this tough love thing, and um, you know it's right, but I just kept thinking, you know, what if, what if that was my last opportunity to talk to him or see him? And I passed it up because I felt like it was the right thing to do, and I, I just wasn't sure. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to live with the outcome if I lost him. But in the meantime, my only thought that I could say to him was, you know, if you are determined to be on a runaway train, me stepping in front of you and being killed with you is not going to stop you. And I have to let you go. And um, that was how it ended for us, temporarily, thank goodness. I think I am, I just want to say, I think you are one of the bravest mothers that I have ever run across. Because no. um, uh, what you have done is you truly, you know, mom to mom, dad to dad, the parents out there who are listening, I know that, like you said, you don't want to give up on your child, as you said earlier. And you think, I what does that look like in the definition of tough, tough love and I, and the, and the word picture that you just shared, which is um, if you're determined to step in front of a one a runaway train and I have to let you go. And I just want to, I want to thank you. And I know that there are other parents listening to this who haven't been able to put words to the way they feel. And you bravely just offered your heart and your story and, I want to thank you in particular for being willing to go back there bravely and courageously so that um, other parents could be able to put words to what's taking place in their hearts. Um, so at that point you said, I have to let you go. What did that look like for you practically as a parent? Um, it was a whole lot of um, guilt. I spent so many reflective moments thinking, what did I do? Why did this happen? Did the divorce bring this on? Should I have waited? Should we have gotten divorced earlier? I questioned mine every moment. Um, I did have a friend who recommended that I call Al-Anon and get the um, get the location of meetings of family. They have like family, not people that actually have excuse me issues, but their family members. And I did go to some of those, and that did help greatly. I um, got <laughs> I went I bought the book. Um, the, gosh, the name of it is something about. Um, how to keep your kids from driving you crazy. And I would read and I had marked segments of it. Um, but I would also, um, did not enjoy the advice of friends who had not experienced what I was experienced, who would say, you know, the, the wonderful, well, just letting go or, you know, uh, You've got to be tough, and 
all the wonderful things that they would say to try to be kind didn't help, to be quite honest with you. Um, it did help my daughter, who said to me, Mom, I was raised in the same house he was. It's not your fault. He made choices. His choices as an adult or as a young adult are not your decisions. He's made these decisions. So there was so much guilt that I had to get through um, and fear, fear of losing um, and and, um, I, and and I'll say again, more guilt. <laughs> um, but I, I got up and went to work every day and put it on my shoulders and tried my best to not show it and move forward and find some sort of way to survive until the day that he called me and said, let's see, he had been arrested mm, a couple of times. He had been in rehab a couple of times. And he called me and said um, that he was going to move to Florida, that there was a drug rehab facility in Florida that he had heard really good things about. And he felt like that maybe if he left town and got away from the group that he was running with, maybe he could come up with a fresh start. And I, of course, wanted wholeheartedly to believe that that was going to be the answer. Um, but I had my doubts. I was scared. I was I was terrified for him to leave because I didn't know, you know, if he'd be coming back. Um, it was almost a year that he was in, and and he uh, um, has lived there, still lives there. So that particular process was ongoing. He did not go down there and find the magic wand. He relapsed a couple of times early on. Um, but he did find a facility and he did find a new way of life and he has been successful and has been clean now for almost five years. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. No. Well, thank you. You know, it's, it's hard because you know, people are always saying, do you think he'll ever move home? Do you think he'll? And um, I'm, I'm so torn. I would love for him to move home. And I think about him getting married and having children, and I want him to be close. And But he, if my options are that he is in Florida and healthy or back with us and the temptation to do to, to relapse is there. There's no choice. He needs to stay where he can be healthy. So one of the things, but it's hard. One of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier was you said um, it would need to come to a place where it would be. F- it, he would have to decide he wanted change. And so I think it's 
um, I celebrate with you the fact that he he's the one who um, instigated the the idea. Is that correct to move to another state to have a fresh start? Yeah. He's the one who took responsibility. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah, and um, and I don't think you know I don't know that everybody is the same, but I know that he would have not been successful doing it because we wanted him to. I think it had to be, he had to get to the point where it was the right thing in his eyes for him, and he knew it. It was time. And um, he had, he had lots of friends, but there were four boys in high school that were in this same group. And, um, they were best of friends, and they lived close to each other, and they were um, cohorts in misbehavior. But um, he has gone to two of those friends' funerals, both from overdoses, and has seen how it has destroyed their families. And I think he, I, I know he realizes the choices that he made, even though they were not easy, to make a change for the right choices for him. And, uh, you know, as a mom, you're constantly, I don't know that I'll, I don't know that I'll ever stop thinking, you know, when he comes home to visit, wants to go uh, play pool, that I can go to bed and lay my head down and not worry, even after five years. But I do know that it's, you know, it's, it's all on him. It's, 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 he's a young man now, and he knows He's got a good life. He's got a wonderful job. He's proven to himself that he can be successful. One of the things I learned when I went to the group for families of drug addicts or alcoholics, uh, one of the leaders made a comment one evening, and it just stuck with me, and that was, when you are a, uh, a parent, and your child has a success, whether it is a sports success or uh, an athletic success, uh, an academic success, whatever. You are proud of them and you encourage them with their successes and you celebrate their successes, but you don't take it away from them. You don't say your success is my success. You let them, their successes be theirs. So you have to let their failures be theirs. You can't take their failures away and make them yours. You have to let them endure their failures as long as, in addition to celebrate their successes. And uh, that's awfully hard. That's terribly hard. But it's essential for them to survive what they've gone through. 
Thank you. That's really good advice. If you could, um, as we're wrapping up, if you could give, if there was a, a mom or a dad who is in the middle of this uh, struggle, as there maybe it's their spouse is or their partner struggling with a an addiction or their child is struggling with it, what would be you could give them one piece of encouragement? What would you give them? So, well, encouragement, I would say, make sure they know you love them, and they do. Make sure, you know, during, during the moments of clarity, when they have, if they're if they're around, and, and there are moments of clarity when you don't feel like the addiction is the person that you're talking to. If you can make the most of those moments and say, you know, I, I I'm not going to pretend that I know what you're going through. I'm also going not going to pretend that there's not a problem. And I love you, and I am here for you, but I cannot support you with your choices right now. So a lot of prayer, I would say, get help as a parent, read, uh, go to support groups, and if there's any way at all possible that you can not accept or or find a way to focus on the good that you know you have instilled in that child and not accept the guilt that comes with their poor decision making. And um, find, find something to focus on in the future and just move forward and pray a lot. Well, thank you. And Mama Bear, that's what I'm calling you. Thank you, Mama Bear, so much for taking the time to share your story. And thank you for being willing to go back uh, to those moments and um, offer them to other people. I, I know and believe that they will... Um, very much encourage families who are walking through it or ministry leaders who are walking alongside families as well and helping them in this. And I really appreciate the, just the nice practical nuggets of wisdom on, hey, here's what here are some things that you can do um, and the directions to, to move forward. So thank you, Mama Bear, for giving up your time today and sharing with us your, your journey. And we are very grateful. And uh, if you will hang on in this episode, we will be right back. Most of us know we should be ministering to the parents in our church, but many of us have no idea how to do it. When you become a member of Ministry to Parents, you'll be able to offer a steady stream of parent videos, family discipleship resources, parent events, games for families, and so much more. 
It's like the Netflix of parent ministry resources. You don't have to figure out your ministry to parents on your own. Let us be a part of your team by joining ministrytoparents.com today. To learn more and get a bunch of free resources, go to ministrytoparents.com slash member. Mama Bear's story. It's insanely powerful. Yes, like <laughs> the first time I heard it, I was fighting back tears, man. And I've I've never even personally had any of those experiences. It's just I felt I could feel it, and I could I could feel it in her voice, not hear it. I could feel it. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful she was willing to be so brave to share. So now we're going to transition. You've gotten a chance to hear this story of this mom and what it's like to walk through in real life. And now we're going to invite an expert to speak on the subject. Yeah, Dr. Chip Dodd is um, probably, if, if I could pick anybody to talk on this topic, it literally would be uh, Dr. Chip Dodd. He is the author of the brand new book, Hope in the Age of Addiction, How to Find Freedom and Restore Your Relationships. Just a quick story. We were we had already mentioned his name for this episode before we even knew that he had just released a book on addiction. Right. And uh, when I saw that, I was just like, go God, how cool. And didn't even know that he would say yes. And when he did, we were just like, oh. happy so, dance, happy dance. Uh, he's a teacher, a trainer, an author, and a counselor. He founded the Center for Professional Excellence in Nashville. That's where he talks about doctors, CEOs, ministers, uh, leaders who are struggling with addiction go there, and uh, he meets and helps with them. And it's uh, it's an incredible. He's written a ton of books, one of those called The Voice of the Heart that I always want to recommend every chance I get. Dr. Chip Dodd is awesome, and he's with us today. So without further ado, we're going to let you hear a little bit about addiction from Dr. Chip Dodd. Addiction? Which, which is the number one problem in the United States. It's addiction. It's not, it's not COVID. It's, it's addiction. And that, that, that addiction is an impaired attempt to have the life we're created to have without having to be in need and without having to do feelings. Parents, um, in so many ways, the, there's a thing called codependency, which you guys are very familiar with. Y'all are well-versed in, in that world. But a person who is addicted depends upon other people around them to some to to support the addict in not having to feel, and and especially parents. Parents, because they love their children or love their spouses or love their friends, parents uh, experience pain when they see their children in pain, and so a codependent will help a person not be in pain so that they, in the process, don't have to experience their own pain. Codependents help so that they won't, they won't have to experience emotional struggle. They won't have to experience sadness, hurt, loneliness, fear, uh, shame, guilt, anger, whatever it happens to be. So the enabler is a person who will assist the addict and become roped in, so to speak, in serving the addiction, the, all their help actually continues to protect the addict from having to land hard and face the mirror, so to speak, to look into the mirror and say, I've got a problem. The codependent always is giving a little more rope, a little more rope, a little more rope. And they, the enabler ends up uh, often uh, protecting secrets, 
uh, becoming the solution. They'll cut deals. Like, let's cut a deal. I promise that I won't eat so-and-so if you don't. And I'll just make sure I stay with you 24 hours a day. And they threaten, if you don't do so-and-so, then I'm going to do so-and-so. But then the time comes, and because the enabler is not doesn't know what to do with their own pain, they will end up cutting the deal with the addict, and the ad, and the addiction remains in control. It's a, it's an astounding dynamic because denial is is sort of the foundation upon which all addiction systems work. See, addiction is bigger than the addict. Addiction is a systemic sickness. Look at our whole society. I mean, when COVID hit, the essential uh, some of the essential businesses were were uh, 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 liquor stores and marijuana shops. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insanity. But we were trying to prevent a nation from having to feel. So, but um, denial is the foundation upon which addiction uh, stands or is built. And denial means I don't see what's happening, so that I won't feel. Uh, what what comes with seeing, so I won't wind up being in need, and then I won't talk. I will stop myself from talking about what's actually happening because I don't trust that anything can really occur that's beneficial. So our, uh, addiction works in a system of denial. The whole pack, the whole group, they circle the wagons around the addict, and they they literally it's a it's a defense of blindness. I mean, it's astounding. I come from a, 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 an addicted family, and we circled the wagons and denied what was actually happening to a significant member of the family. And we didn't see. We literally were blind. I remember a friend of mine said, so-and-so Scott seems to be you know, having a problem. I'm like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. It's going to be a rough time, and it's just a stressful time, and it's just a this, and it's just a that. And on some level, deep down, I knew that there was a, something worse was going on. But the idea of addressing it was scarier than putting up with it and trying to figure out our own solutions. So I didn't see what was happening. So I wouldn't have to feel fear. I wouldn't have to feel loneliness. I wouldn't have to feel hurt. And then I wouldn't be in need of, of, of experiencing the pain of, you know, knowing that if this person left or died, uh, you know, I would wind up not having guidance. I would wind up not having security. So I would do anything to keep the person up so I wouldn't have to experience a loss. And then I never talked about what was actually happening. It was a secret because I knew if I talked, one, we would be exposed and I might get in trouble. Two, nobody was paying attention to me anyway. So my strength came from protecting the addict. And then I didn't trust that anyone or anything good would actually come if we let go of control. Now that's a long explanation, but that that what that shows us is that Denial is actually a power used by addiction. Now, I'm describing addiction in a personified way because addiction really does work off of a person becomes oppressed, okay? And then the family around the person becomes oppressed. They're oppressed by the the stress and pressure of not knowing what to do with feelings. And then the person becomes obsessed. What do I need to do to keep myself from being exposed as vulnerable to keep myself from being needy, to keep myself from being uh, emotionally wounded again. And then whatever we do to calm the obsession, to get control of the oppression, becomes a possession. So uh, of oppression, obsession, possession. 
Now, that was great wisdom and help for those to understand kind of what addiction is and get kind of the heart behind it. Uh, the next part of the conversation, we, we know a lot of church leaders listen to this podcast, so we just asked them, how can church leaders who are in contact with a family that has addiction going on and are trying to deal with it, how can a church leader be a part of that process in and, a healthy way? And this was one of my favorite questions to ask because that's the whole point of the church. Like the bride of Christ is that we, we, it's our calling to be with people and help people and bring hope and pain because that's what Jesus did, right? And so I loved what he had to say about this subject. The pastor uh, has to recognize that the family that has addiction is first and foremost one, struggling with a tremendous amount of toxic shame. In other words, they see themselves as failures to God, failures to the community. They see themselves as hypocrites uh, and, and, and just absolute rejectable in so many ways because very often they don't recognize two things. One is the forgiving nature of of Christianity and the forgiving nature of Christian leaders uh, called to bring mercy uh, as well as, of course, you know, judgment is necessary, but first with mercy, opportunity to, to uh, find a redemptive processes. And then secondly, uh, the family uh, often doesn't recognize that this uh, problem, this addiction is a sickness. And they see it as only a failure and a sin. I mean, we've got neuroscience. We've got the American Medical Association. We've got the proof of, of thousands and thousands of recovering people from addiction who testify that it's a actual brain disorder. And, um, for example, I treated uh, for 22 years, I treated predominantly physicians who struggled with addiction. And addiction to drugs, alcohol, uh, sex, even addiction to work, and uh, even codependency, which we won't get into now. But these physicians are the most accomplished people in the world, some of the, and serving the noblest profession in the world in so many ways. These people are smart, and they're tough, and they're moral, uh, giving their lives to uh, the greater good in, in many different forms. And yet they look stupid, they look weak, and they look bad. So we know that, um, that if the intellect doesn't solve it, if the uh, willpower doesn't solve it, if moral uh, 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 stamina, moral uh, structure doesn't solve it, then there's a real problem going on. And it turns out that the physician uh, that I was treating had a heart problem, but the heart problem had been connected to uh, what they did to stop their heart from feeling, to not be bothered, to handle stress. And they found some form of, 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 form of, of solace and connection to stop themselves from being in pain themselves. And so this thing, whatever it was that they did, took over their brains. And then if they didn't have the substance, they literally were in tremendous pain. And the pain was physical at this point, not just emotional. And so doctors are living proof that addiction is a sickness, and even though it, it starts as a sin. And the sin is doing whatever I've got to do to not have to feel myself as being human. 
So the one of the greatest interventions pastoral people can do is to recognize the human ailment, the pain underneath the addiction, the sadness, the hurt, the loneliness, and the toxic shame, and then intervene on it as, look, the, I know you feel terrible, but this is a sickness. This is a brain problem. When you get off of the drug or whatever that behavior is that is uh, compulsive, then we, we'll address the heart. We'll address the sin. And the sin is the vow to not feel. And the sickness occurs because we are feeling creatures. After he gave practical advice to church leaders, then Dr. Chip Dodd went on to talk a little bit more about addiction. So let's hear what he had to say. It turns out we're created, uh, Jeremy and Elizabeth, we're created a very specific way. We're created by God. There's a, there's a, a, a t- test that uh, newborns go through as soon as they're born called the APGAR. And it's named after an obstetrician whose last name was actually APGAR. And it stands for five things. Will the child, uh, what's the uh, uh, appearance, grimace, activity, uh, uh, let's see, appearance, APGAR. You have to excuse me a second. See, so APGAR is uh, appearance, um, pulse, that's it, pulse, grimace, activity, and respiration. So they're checking five physiological activities. But what they're really assessing is three things. Will that child creature created by God, will the child cry out? Will the child, does the child have feelings? Does the child have needs? Do they experience their neediness and their feelings? And will they cry out, which is like an expression of fear. I'm no longer where I was. I don't want to go back to where I was. I'm made to go somewhere else. I'm I'm made to be with this caretaker. They're expressing fear and even grief and loneliness and a, 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 an expression of need for relationship. So will the child cry out? And then secondly, will the child reach out? And you've seen pictures of children or newborns, infants, right out of the womb. They'll touch cloth. They'll touch an instrument uh, in, the, in the OR or in the uh, midwife area. Or, and then finally, they'll touch the finger, the finger of a human connection, and something calm comes over them. So will the child cry out? Will the child reach out? And then will the child connect in that reaching out and find the solace of that? And then will the child take in? Will the child, excuse me, will the child actually craving, will the child crave and take in the sustenance of life that will grow them into being able to give what they're receiving? And so... The APGAR is actually a test of cry out feelings, reach out, be, be human and as you're made for connection, and then take in the food of life. So it turns out that, that, that APGAR is actually a test of a person being human. Now, remember that this, this little infant doesn't think and can't talk, but they're literally doing exactly what they're made to do. And it turns out that human beings are created as emotional and spiritual creatures, creatures of the heart, created to do one thing in life, and it's live fully. But we can't live fully unless we're literally emotionally present, cognitively present, in relationship with ourselves, heads and heart connected, relationship with others and God. And like the old proverb says, that as a person thinks in their heart, so is the person, the head and heart connected. 
and and the proverb that says that the the, the the heart is the wellspring of life. Guard it with all diligence and respect, honor how God created us for connection through relationship. And what's amazing is that Jesus in, in Matthew 7, speaking to how we do not receive because we do not ask, he gives us a grown-up version of how we're created. That what's amazing is he says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open unto you. That is the grown-up version of how we're created. He basically says, don't leave behind how you're created. Grow up into how God made you. That cry out is ask so you shall receive. Reach out is seek so that you will find. And take in is knock and the door will be opened unto you. So you will come into the house, feed well, and basically take out you know pails of water or doggy bags of food to others who are in need. Because you cannot give what you do not have. So it's astounding when we start to grasp how we're created by God, first as emotional, spiritual, relational creatures who develop cognitive capacities and actions to, to back up those things, that we're relational creatures before we are even productive creatures. And that's extraordinarily meaningful because uh, we in our culture often overvalue reason instead of reason being used to plummet the depths of the heart and speak them. So the Abgar is extraordinarily significant uh, in terms of, of how we're created and how we're made to grow as relational creatures, created to live fully. But what's amazing, we're created to live fully, which means to remain human, in need of God, which means we develop empathy. We know what it's like to be human. And empathy, remembering what it's like to be human, remembering what it's like to be in need, remembering what it's like to need to be saved, remembering what it's like God did for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves, allows us to have compassion. Compassion comes from being able to associate, relate my experience of life to another. And compassion leads us to being creative with, with uh, problems. We become creative people out of compassion. We, we do what we got to do, figure out what we need to figure out to solve problems. And we do so in a way to be of service to others. So we never are created to leave behind how, how we are created. We're made to fulfill how we're created by living fully in relationship as emotional, spiritual creatures who are capable of thinking. And we're made to use our thinking to express the fullness of our hearts. He has so many good things to say. Yes? That's right. Uh, in fact, he could have filled three podcasts with all of the tr- genuinely. If if I played the whole conversation for you, we'd be here for a really long time. And because, I didn't want him to stop. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he told me. He told me. He said his wife says all the time that when he gets alone with someone and starts talking about these things, it's like releasing butterflies. There's a million uh, things that come out and. Uh, and I, that's how I feel, like he's releasing butterflies. And so here's one more butterfly for you to check out. And it's astounding in the New Testament. The people who get the healings over and over, the bleeding woman, the sinful woman in Luke six, uh, Luke 7, the crippled man, the blind man, Bartimaeus, all of them get their healing through vulnerability. The blind man, Bartimaeus, I want to see. The bleeding woman, if I could just reach out and touch his uh, garment, then I would be healed. She's extending herself with hope and vulnerability and neediness. And 
And then when she gets, when he touches, she touches Jesus, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the, the people around him said, everybody's touching you. But he said, somebody touched me differently. And the touch was the Atgar. The touch was ask, seek, knock. The touch was cry out, reach out, take in. And so all kinds of healing can occur. Parents with children, enablers with addicts, addicts with enablers, humans, churches, pastors with congregations, physicians with patients, by us becoming uh, human again as we're created, made to live in relationship with ourselves, others, and God. Thank you so much to Dr. Chip Dodd for sharing your expertise, your advice, your wisdom. Thank you for being willing to discuss this subject with us on the Ministry to Parents podcast. also want to thank Mama Bear. Wherever you are. Wherever you are. For sharing your story. And just, it was so brave for you to go back there and open up your heart. And we just know that there are people out there listening who this has brought so much encouragement. And if this episode in particular has encouraged you, we would love to hear about it. You can email us at info at com and just say, hey, let me tell you about what this story did for me. Or if you've shared this and it helped a family, we would love to hear from you. And we'll pass it along to Mama Bear. With permission. We'll make, yeah, we we'll make sure she sees it. <laughs> And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. That means you'll get notified every time we drop a new episode. You can do that on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining in today. This is the podcast for church leaders that helps you build a ministry to parents. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the M2P podcast. To download free parent resources, go to ministrytoparents.com.